Talking history. This is News Talk. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And out of that silence came thousands of voices. The strategy of the white man has always been divide and conquer. As one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Aukteroin, Argus, Akoiza. Good evening and welcome. We're talking history on News Talk 106 to 108 with me, Patrick Gagan. In tonight's show, a remarkable woman who was involved in the War of Independence and became a major figure in Irish theatre and whose story is only now being retold. We'll also be going in search of the Celts and asking whether they ever even existed. And we'll end the show by bringing you the history of Russia up to the war in Ukraine. And we'll be finding out about Putin's view of the past. You can email us your thoughts and views, talkinghistory at newstalk.com, and we'd love to hear from you. Last week, we marked the 21st anniversary of 9-11 with a show on the history of the terrorist attacks on US soil. And we debated its legacy for America and the world. And if you want to listen back to this or to any of our older shows, just go to the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud, our website, newstalk.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. We begin tonight's show with the story of Daisy Toto Bannard Cogley. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Elaine Sisson of the IADT, the Institute of Art, Design and Technology, to talk about the life and legacy of a remarkable woman who was involved in the War of Independence, was a leading figure in the Dublin theatre world for over four decades, as well as being one of the first directors of the Gate Theatre. And uh, we'll hear all about the story Elaine has written about her, together with Brian Trench, in the current issue of History Ireland. Elaine, you're very welcome. Thank you. I haven't given the name of the woman, and that's because there is very various names she went by over life. So so tell us who she was and the different names that she was known by over her life. Well, officially, she is Madame Desiree Bannard Cogley, but she's born Joanna Bannard in Paris. She marries Fred Cogley, so she takes his name. Then she alternatively becomes Daisy, which is a, obviously a diminutive of Desiree, Daisy Cogley, Nonine Cogley, which is the Irish version of Daisy, and to her friends Toto Cogley. And then she also becomes known as the Madame or Madame Bannard Cogley. So variations of all of these names come to play, which makes her incredibly hard to trace through the record. And that might be, is it one of the reasons why she has kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit, that uh, she appears under different names and in different guises over her life? I think this is one of the problems with the historical record when you're looking at people who come in and out of the shadows. So she's also involved in activities which are quite ephemeral. So apart from her political activities, and we can talk about that in a moment, her involvement with the theatre particularly and with cabaret means that there's very little record about that type of stuff. So in, in order to trace her, and also I think, you know, when people are marginal, they do fall out of the record really easily. Uh, women particularly prone to this because they change their name. In her case, she added her name, so that was OK. But um, Brian and myself, w- we kind of had been researching her separately and we kind of found each other and then we sort of pooled resources. And mostly we're tracing her through archives of memoirs, letters, biographies, pension records. She has no archive of her own. I do have a I do have a tape of her voice. And so it it becomes incredibly hard to trace somebody who actually was seems to be everywhere and yet nowhere at the same time. 
So you mentioned uh, the political involvement and you've also mentioned pensions. So talk to me about her role in the War of Independence, because she seemed to have played a, a significant role, but yet again, a kind of a it's, it's shrouded in, in a little bit of mystery. Well, she comes to Ireland in around 1909 and she has her mother's from Wexford and she comes to Ireland and she meets Fred Cogley and they end up eloping to San Diego in Chile and where their first son is born. But she seems to be back in Ireland by the time of the War of Independence and certainly in 1916 where her son Fergus is born. So she's busy that year. Um, But by the time of the War of Independence, she's very involved in in Republican politics and she becomes later she becomes associated with the anti-treaty movement but she because of her because she's a native speaker um, she travels back and forward to Paris um, Shanti O'Kelly is in Paris at this time and she 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 is a messenger. It's actually quite difficult to know what she was doing but she was very useful and she was under the radar in that regard. So after the War of Independence, she took the anti-treaty side and um, she was very vociferous about that. And so very involved in fundraising for Republican causes um, in the feminist movement, the suffragist movement. And she ends up going to prison in 22 in Mount Joy for her anti-treaty activities. Yeah, because she seems to have been involved in storing arms at some point as well. So Allegedly, she was during the War of Independence. She she had um, she she hid arms in her flat in St. Stephen's Green at that time. And later, at the, the time of the um, the Civil War, she was part of the kind of band that were known as Suffolk Street. So they they were a group of women who were involved in um, pub- the publicity campaigns of the IRA. And she worked with Robert Brennan, etc. Et in that. And she was in the offices in Suffolk Street when they got raided and they all got taken to prison to the extent that the cell was known then as Suffolk Street. That kind of band of women who came in were known as the Suffolk Street Band. Um, And so she, again, she doesn't write, we don't know anything about her. She doesn't write about this and she doesn't talk about this. Um, But we know this about her from other people's writings. So the diaries of Rosamond Jacob, for example, or the memoirs of Margaret Buckley, where Mrs. Cogley appears. So we don't know very much about her work during the War of Independence. But when people are starting to write their memoirs then of the Civil War, that's when she kind of comes into a little bit more focus. So we have a clearer idea really about her activities around then. And there is a very lovely description of a night, an evening in Mountjoy that Margaret Buckley writes about um, in her book, The Jangling of the Keys. And she talks about um, it was cold, it was dark, the women were in their cells. It was very isolating and it gives you a sense of how frightening it was. It's not heroic at all, really. It's very frightening. And somebody calls for Mrs. Cogley to sing. So she was a trained singer and she used to sing for She sang on two or end. She sang in concerts, etc. And Margaret um, Buckley talks about the dark and the cold and the sound of her voice and the sound of women crying. And I just think that kind of detail, it gives you a sense of her her power as a person, her character and her kind of ability. But also it brings back the kind of materiality and viscerality of that particular moment. And she had a really remarkable career then involved in the theatre world and uh, over many decades and, and seemed to be involved in so many different aspects, whether it was costume design or as a business director of the gate. As She acted, she was involved, I think, in producing as well. Like, like she seemed to have done a little bit of everything. Well, I came, I found out about her because I had been doing some research on Michal McLeamore and Tilton Edwards on the history of the Gate Theatre. And her name kept on cropping up. And um, I found out that the original subscription uh, list for the Gate Theatre 
came from her private cabaret club and it had 400 people as a list on her private cabaret club. And that really set me wondering, who is this person that would run a cabaret in Dublin in the 1920s with 400 members who will then subscribe to to the list of the Gate Theatre? And that's when I started researching her. So if you were to think, if you were to look at MacLemore and Edwards, when they write their memoirs, you swear that nothing was happening in Dublin before they arrived there. But it's clear that she was quite central to quite an extensive bohemian network because it's happening in Dublin from the early years of the state. And so she had been involved with the Radical Club. She was a member of the Radical Club and she was in charge of sort of the entertainment wing of the, of the Radical Club to the extent that Lima Flaherty complains that the um, Radical Club entertainments are actually getting too much attention. So then she goes on. Also, I think it's important to remember that these kinds of ventures and different ventures, they're ways of making money. They have no money. She comes out of prison in 23. Her husband, Fred, is still in prison. They have two small children. She's dressmaking. She's designing. She's making hats. She's singing. She's trying to do anything she can to earn a bit of money. So she starts to run then um, in around 1926. We know she ran a cabaret club called the Thalia Cabaret Club. And then after that, she... This is where MacLemore and Edward start to, I think, interact with her. And in MacLemore's memoirs, he talks about her and he says everybody knew her. She was just one of those people that everybody knew. And that was in 1927. So by 1928, they kind of put together, pool their resources. And that's where the Gate Theatre Studio is born at that point. So she is involved from the very beginning. She appears in the cast. She was she was already an actor. She had worked for the Irish Theatre in Hardwick Street. Um, she's down as um, a costume maker, not designer. MacLemore designed and she made. She's directing pageants. She's singing. She's just so busy all the time. And um, again, though, you know, when you start to uncover this history, you think, how do we not know who she is? But again, it goes back to that record of somebody where it doesn't hit the public record. The only reason we, you know, she got a military pension in 1940, where she had to go back and and talk about her activities. And that's how we know about her activities in, in the War of Independence. But other than that, she's just always in the shadows of of a, you know, a theatre programme or a shadowy photograph or somebody else's diary. She's a footnote in history. And so I'm glad that she's being brought back in to the light um, because she was such a pivotal figure and so many people. Liam O'Flaherty talks about her in his letters and he talks about going to her clubs. Um, Todd Andrews talks about going to the cabaret clubs. It's a big part of Dublin life at the time and it just seemed to you know, especially in the 20s, it just seems to have kind of been buried under other kinds of considerations or um, appraisals of that decade. And she died in 1965 and the final years seem to have been somewhat difficult and money seems to have been a problem. And it seems even in those final years, she was kind of fading from from the popular consciousness. Yeah, I mean, she she ends up going to London in the early 30s. She she she's she's in the house when Devil Era comes out of prison in 24. So she's very much part of that that milieu. But by the early 30s, she's becoming quite disillusioned by the the way in which um, the country is going. She's a communist. You know, she's she's a feminist communist. She's radical. She goes to London. Her husband had gone and she went to London. And during the 30s, she started a cabaret club, um, a theatre club in Hampstead called the, the Little green curtain or the green little curtain, one of the little theatres. But by the 40s, she's back in Dublin and she does say 
that the war, when the war breaks out in Britain, she says, uh, Britain at war is not a great place for Franco-Irish communist, feminist, Republican. So she ends up back in in Dublin. And then she starts up again. People might uh, have some knowledge of it, the studio, little studio theatre in Mount Street. And that ran for many years. And then her son Mitchell took that over. But again, it was an endeavour whereby she's she's running a studio. She's always on the margins. At this stage, she's not really associated with the Gate Theatre anymore. The Gate Theatre has become part of the establishment with senators at opening nights. And, you know, and she's still doing her marginal kind of radical stuff up in Mount Street. Um, and then she she supplemented her income by teaching singing, teaching French, uh, doing drama classes, etc. But by her, by the 60s, she really was quite diminished, I suppose, in terms of her capacity. And she did live with the Keating family towards the end of her life and they looked after her. So her life was not unhappy, it was a very rich life, but it was quite financially impoverished. I think that money was always an issue, um, as it was for many artists and continues to be so um, for many artists and people who, who live out of the mainstream. So... By the 60s, when she dies, she's a sort of um, a faded historical figure, I think. And there are obituaries and there are kind of um, acknowledgements of her work. But who who knew 10 years later, nobody knew about her. And many of our listeners will remember the broadcaster Fred Cogley, and he was her grandson. Fred was her grandson. Um, Fred died a few years ago. Fred was very kind to me and generous with with talking about his grandmother because um, I think she lived with them when, when he was a child for some time. Um, and uh, so Fred is obviously named after his grandfather. And um, so journalism ran in the family because Fred Cogley Sr. was a journalist and then Mitchell and Fergus is the other son and then Fred Jr. And then their son, Niall, who's also been very generous in terms of sharing family um, archives and anecdotes, etc. And you and Brian have done brilliant work in kind of reclaiming and, and, and rediscovering her story and telling it to a, a new generation. And I think they're going to erect a blue plaque maybe and the DIB, the Dictionary of Irish Biography, will have, soon have an entry on her. So she very much is, her memory and her story is be, now being retold. We're very glad to have her back in the public record. And it's one of those things that that as historians, a lot of what you do is just within the work of historians, historians read other historians. But this is something that I feel very proud of and attached to, of bringing her back into public record. So Brian and I have co-written an entry for the Dictionary of Irish Biography. So she's going to be in the next iteration of that and also been agitating to put a blue plaque up uh, with Dublin City Council, which looks like it's going to happen. Um, The question, and, and this goes back to her, kind of her, her nomadic lifestyle is where would you put a blue plaque with Tota Cogley? Would you put it at the site of her Cowrie Club in Harcourt Street, which is now the Garda Station, or in South William Street, or in Mount Street, or in St- Stephen's Green, where she ran her cabarets? So, you know, that has to be worked out. But um, I think she certainly deserves um, a place in the public. And I have long agitated that she sh- there should be a bust of her in the Gate Theatre alongside Hilton and Michael and also the other founder of the Gate Theatre, who's also not remembered, is Garrow de Lachlan. So the four of them deserve um, much better, much better recognition. But Toto Cogley herself particularly deserves public recognition. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight to tell us about Toto Cogley. Desiree, Daisy, Toto, Bannard, Cogley. And you can read all about her in the current issue of History Ireland. A wonderful piece there by Dr Elaine Sisson and Brian Trench. And we'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. 
Well, welcome back to Talking History. There has never been a distinct people, race or tribe claiming the name of Celtic, although remnants of different languages and cultures remain throughout Wales, Ireland, Scotland and Cornwall. And a new book argues that theories of Celticism continue to fuel many of the prejudices and misconceptions that divide the peoples of the British Isles to this day. The book is called The Celts, A Sceptical History. It's published in hardback by Profile Books and I'm delighted to welcome the author Simon Jenkins to the show tonight. Simon, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. It's a fascinating book because it's as much a history of Ireland, Scotland, Wales over the centuries and it's as much a history of the present and a possible future as it is about the Celts a thousand five hundred or so years ago. Well that, that, that was my intention. In a sense it's, the, it's, a, it's, a, it's a narrative of an argument. Uh, what, what was in these islands right back in time and does it really matter? It's interesting, but does it really matter? And I think the conclusion I drew from coming to this as a layman, I have none of your expertise in this, um, is it does rather matter. Um, the, the attitude that the English, uh, who are the other side of this debate, uh, have always taken to the Celts is one of, I think, slightly amused, um, uh, mildly nostalgic, bordering on contempt. Um, that they, 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 you know, they were the defeated tribe of, of the British Isles uh, and the Saxons, who supposedly invaded in the 5th and 6th centuries AD, um, uh, conquered them, uh, drove them out of the rest of England um, into the western uh, coasts and, and shores uh, and um, um, became the great imperial power that they, they, they were in the 19th, 19th century. Uh, and I just think that, and it's not me to think this, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm combining uh, scholarship over the past 20, 30 years to point out that this sort of foundation narrative of the British Isles is simply wrong, um, nor is it supported by any real, real modern scholarship. There's a lot of argument around the fringes, but broadly speaking, this is now a consensus. But I think every single person I've ever spoken to thinks there were Celts, uh, they were conquered by Saxons, and the Saxons won, and the Celts were driven west uh, with their weird languages, and that's the story of the British Isles. It just isn't. And so it's all founded on a myth and you explore just how dangerous it is to have a myth like that uh, guiding everything. So instead of one distinct separate race, it's different groups, different cultures with different languages who were who were in these parts. Well, the great revolution in, in the past uh, 20, 30 years has been in something called DNA archaeology. Uh, it, it's the beginning to decode um, the, the chemical makeup of our bodies and discover, to a remarkable extent, where they came from and how long they've been around. Um, and this has been quite dramatic. And it shows that the British Isles um, w- was never never experienced some great replacement of its population by one invading power in a kind of 19th century or Holocaust sense. Um, uh, the, the British Isles have always been occupied by a myriad of small groups, small tribes, um, who, who were scattered across the islands right from the, the, the Mesolithic Middle Stone Age period through the Bronze Age and the Iron Age. Yes, there were immigrants, there were the Vikings, there were the Normans, various other people. But broadly speaking, we've been here all those years. And we means um, very many different sorts of peoples. The question of language, which is what gave birth to the concept of the Celts, guess question of language is a quite a different matter. Celtic was it was it was it, the Celtic languages were a group of languages that appear to have arrived in these shores sometime in the in, in the Bronze Age. People like Barry Cunliffe and other experts looked into this in great detail. Um, uh, at the same time, but we don't know when. 
Um, it looks as if the North Sea coast was occupied by people speaking a Germanic language, a version of Indo-European, uh, which may well have been the origin of early English. And that's why the two sides of the British Isles had, in those far-gone days, different languages. It wasn't a matter of one conquering the other. And then in terms of the mythology, uh, you explore how it's really developed from the 17th century on, I suppose, back going back to the 12th century, Geoffrey of Monmouth. But it's very much something that comes in later periods where, in a way, the history of the past is rewritten and kind of reinvented. Uh, well, yes. And to be fair to the scholars in those days, they didn't have any DNA archaeology to go on. The only thing they had to go on uh, was, was language. And to a certain extent, the the element of myth that might have some truth in it, um, like, like King Arthur, for instance, who is mythical but interesting, um, that's what they had to go on. Uh, the, people like Edward Floyd, who was, who was a, a, an academic in Oxford in the, in, the, in the late 17th, early 18th century, um, noticed that the Celtic language is plural, uh, had similarities, uh, similarities, I may say, with Breton as well in France. Um, some French scholars noted the same thing, concluded not unreasonably, it looked like a different people, uh, and this was the leap of faith, a different people spoke them uh, from the people that occupied the eastern side of the British Isles who appeared to speak something which looked more like German. Uh, these two languages, interestingly, had absolutely no, have absolutely nothing in common. There were, there were almost no Celtic words in, 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 in English, um, which is quite unlike most of the languages of Europe, which borrow from many past languages. So it was a remarkable thing to find. And it was only when the DNA is examined that we discovered that the languages came much later than the people and with the result of different forces, possibly those of the Bronze Age. You show then how, and you explain in your epilogue, how we must not fall victim to myths. And do you think that this myth of how the British people was born and how uh, you have this story of the Celts being conquered by the Saxons, that that has that that has had a negative impact then on Wales, on Scotland, on the development of the different constituent parts of the United Kingdom? I think it has. Uh, I, I'm not a doom monger, um, and I'm only half Welsh, I'm half English. Um, but I, I do think the reason why um, Wales, Scotland and Ireland um, never uh, were, so to speak, completely conquered by the English, by conquered, I mean, conquered and assimilated by the English, unlike the Cornish, uh, the Devonians, um, the Strathclyders, uh, the Cumbrians, uh, many other um, groups who, who spoke Celtic languages, uh, but who were assimilated by the English. The reason was that for some reason, and largely geographical, they, they never, in a sense, capitulated to the pressure from, um, from the English tribes, the early English kingdoms, the seven kingdoms of the Heptarchy in the, in the 5th and 6th century, um, was that they were further west, they had more sense of identity, um, they remained separate. And then the English treated them so badly, and this is the thing that was revealed to me by doing this research, um, England's behaviour towards Wales, Scotland and Ireland distinctly, not the same, distinctly, uh, was so terrible that, that, that they developed this identity, uh, which is often called a Celtic identity, over against England, to the extent that the concept of being Celtic really meant just being not English. And I think that, that remains to this day. I mean, you just hear it in Boris Johnson's references to Scottish independence and so on. It's one of real contempt. Um, uh, it, 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 is, it is a sadness, I think, that at the moment, the British Isles, alone of Europe outside Yugoslavia and to a certain extent Czechoslovakia, is the only country with unstable unions. 
uh, it is phenomenal to me that a country as great as the, great as the United Kingdom was lost Ireland uh, in, in, in the last century, and it may, may well, we don't know, but may well lose Scotland as well. It is humiliating to me that we have a political culture that cannot maintain a civilised union of its collective peoples. And is that because it is very much an English-centred story and an English-centred history and that there isn't that respect and understanding of the, the other parts? It is precisely that, yes, I'm afraid, I have to say it. It is precisely that. I mean, to, to read the story, and you know much better than I, of, of England's treatment of Ireland down the ages, it was far worse than its treatment of the American colonies, um, worse in many ways than its treatment of any other colonies in the empire. It was treated with utter contempt. Uh, Scotland was treated much better, um, but nonetheless, Scotland was conquered and forced into a union with England. Um, Wales went slightly more peacefully in the 16th century. Each of them is very different. Each of them are quite different countries, cultures, languages, all these things. I, I hate to see them lumped together as the Celtic fringe. But the fact is that they have remained at odds with England. Uh, and and you, you only have to go to, to, to Wales. I spent a certain amount of time in Wales. And every, anything that's said about the English is always said with a sort of spit in the back of the throat. And the same applies to SNP meetings in Scotland. Uh, less so now in Ireland, because Ireland is now mercifully independent. But, um, but no, this difference between England and the rest lingers on, and it is outrageous, I think. You do mention in your introduction how, how it's impossible to deny that Ireland's done well on its own. But yet, in the end of the book, when you start talking about a new Ireland, a new Scotland, a new Wales, you have a heading about the seduction of independence, and you seem to prefer a federal solution for Scotland and Wales than complete independence. And I'm just wondering, given how Ireland has gone on over the past hundred years, would it be so bad for Scotland and and Wales to go its own way? I don't think, it, I, I think, I think it's unrealistic for Wales, I have to say. And I, I know the, the economy of Wales quite well. I just don't think that works. Uh, for Scotland, no, if I was a Scotsman, I'd vote to go with Ireland. Uh, no question about it. Um, small countries work nowadays. Small countries tend to be prosperous. Small countries tend to be um, independent. They, let's take back control, Boris Johnson's phrase for England. Um, so, yes, I would. But on the other hand, I just think it's the most crushing failure that, that, that when... Uh, other countries in Europe have got federal constitutions which keep their, their subsidiary provinces, states, whatever you want to call them, um, in some sense of consent to central government, France, Spain, Spain in particular, is, and so on. We can't. Uh, so I, I'm sort of ashamed of the fact that we can't. Um, I'd be ashamed if Scotland went, as I was, would have been ashamed if Ireland, when Ireland went. Um, but I, I no, I mean, I, I would like to see a British Isles that was in some sense a united confederacy. I wonder where does Brexit fit into the story? Because again, you know, that very powerful epilogue when you talk about how countries and people mustn't fall victim to myths, that there does seem to be that great divide in the United Kingdom between those who think Brexit is a shining great thing that's going to, to take back control and lead to a better future. And then those who think that it's a terrible thing and is going to undermine Britain's place in the world and economy and so on. And and one one of those views has to be wrong. And given that it seems to be dividing people so much and dividing politics, is is there a danger of, of the United Kingdom falling victim to a new myth, whether it's a pro-Brexit one or an anti-Brexit one? Well, I mean, Britain's lived with myths all its life. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, yes, I think there is. I mean, I, 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 I think that... Um, 
to leave the EU in its current state was an, almost an understandable thing for an offshore island to do, um, but it wasn't really necessary. What was disastrous was leaving the single market, and that, that disaster is now being evidenced in Northern Ireland. Um, you, you cannot be outside the market of your, your, your major continental partner. It just doesn't, doesn't work. So that's got to be corrected in some sense. Um, uh, the idea of an independent Britain um, trading with all the rest of the world to compensate for losing trade with Europe is ridiculous. Uh, I don't think anyone really believes it. I mean, over half the population now regrets Brexit. Um, somehow that's going to have to be corrected. I, God knows how. Your book ends on a nicely uplifting and kind of idealistic vision for how things could work. But yet reading it, you think this isn't going to happen, that people aren't going to approach uh, the different parts of the United Kingdom with the respect and understanding that you call for. And therefore, is this great vision then doomed to fail? Well, I, I don't, don't think I am that, that pessimistic. No, I mean... Uh... Look, I mean, I, I, I come back. I come back to what, what's happened in other countries. Uh, they've faced exactly this problem. Uh, Spain, about ten years ago, fifteen years ago, faced it in Catalonia. Um, uh, France has often faced it. Um, Italy certainly faced it. Uh, Germany faced it immediately after the war. Um, there is no way that that um, that, that uh, an over-centralized state is not going to be facing separatist movements in its, in its provinces. But but states don't have to be over-centralized. Switzerland isn't. Um, no, most countries now give their, their individual states, and particularly Germany, um, very considerable autonomy. Uh, Scotland was offered Devo Max by, um, by David Cameron, um, but Alex Salmond turned it down, I think unwisely. Um, he was offered far greater autonomy in matters fiscal and economic. It would have cost Scotland dear, I think. It's cost, it cost Ireland dear when you went independent. But it is, it is perfectly plausible to have a, a looser confederacy than we've got now. And I think we could still do it. Um, I just think the problem is largely within the Tory party at the moment. Very good. Well, Simon, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you tonight about the Celts, a sceptical history, which is as much a history of the past thousand years and more as it is of the Celts themselves, which, of course, uh, we're explaining that uh, probably never existed and certainly not as a single uh, culture. Uh, The book is published in hardback by Profile Books. The author is Simon Jenkins. And Simon, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thank you very much indeed. It was a very helpful conversation. We'll be back with more Talking History on News Talk right after this. Talking History with Patrick Gagan on News Talk. Well, welcome back to Talking History. No other country has been so divided over its past as Russia. None has changed its story so often. How the Russians came to tell their story and to reinvent it as they went along is a vital aspect of their history, their culture, and beliefs. And this is all explored in a beautifully written new book, The Story of Russia, published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing. And I'm delighted to welcome the author Orlando Figes to the show tonight. Orlando, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to begin with a quote from George Orwell that you use in your introduction. Whoever controls the past controls the future. And that really seems to be what's at stake here. You see it very much in the war with Ukraine that's going on at present. You see it very much in, in many of the ideas that are developed and explored in the book. Absolutely. And that was the aim I had in setting out. I had felt a, a growing disconnect, I think, between the way we in the West see Russian history, the way I've taught it for 35 years, and the way the Russians see their own history, the beliefs, the mythologies, the values they attach to certain periods of their history, certain episodes in their past, which have become, as you say, uh, 
weaponized by Putin in this war. But that's nothing new. I think Russia's uh, absolutist rulers have always uh, looked to history, to the narratives they can spin to give meaning to their present actions and their future visions for the country. So Putin's not unusual in that sense, but he's manipulated history quite effectively uh, since he came to power 22 years ago. And um, we see many of those ideas in his historical justification for the war, which he effectively wrote in a long article about the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians in July 2021, in which he said basically that Ukraine had no nation, no basis for statehood. It had always been um, the little brother of big brother Russia. And uh, and as whenever it tried to break away from this family of Slav nations headed by Russia, it fell under the influence of the West and became turned into a sort of anti-Russia. So one could, I suppose, as Putin does, draw many parallels from history in which you could say that happened. So in that article, Putin names the Poles and the Lithuanians in the 17th century, the Austrians in the 19th century, the Germans in the First and Second World War, the Allied powers in the Civil War, and of course now the Americans, the West collectively turning Ukrainian nationalism against Russia. So this is um, a sort of narrative that also fits the way the Russians have seen their own history, uh, 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 not just because of the history books that have been written by Russian historians since the 19th century, but because of the sort of films and books they've seen and been fed uh, uh, through the propaganda machine more recently. So this is the narrative that Russia is always attacked by the West but um, and has to find a strong leader to rally the nation and repel the invaders who threaten their their very existence. Um, so think of, you know, um, Alexander Nevsky, the medieval Novgorod prince who uh, repelled the Teutonic Knights who wanted to convert Russia to the Catholic faith. Think of uh, Alexander I, who repelled Napoleon. Think of Stalin, who repelled the Nazi forces and so on. This is This is the sort of um, national memory, which is has built up not just through historiography, but through the representation of Russia's past in books and films, and which uh, Putin is is now weaponizing. And it's also interesting to see how you know not only history being fought over, but the idea of the motherlands and what the nation represents and what parts are included within the nation. And your introduction has a very interesting event in 2016 with President Putin uh, commemorating. Uh, it's a statue for Grand Prince uh, Vladimir, who died in 1015. And of course, we have Vladimir Putin. We also have uh, the Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky. And uh, the Ukrainians were very unhappy because it was an attempt to to show that this was one nation, that this was all Russia, that this wasn't, uh, there wasn't a Ukraine, there wasn't a Belarus, that uh, in a way they were able to claim, by claiming the history, they were able to claim the future of these areas as well. Oh, absolutely. That was the symbolic importance of the opening of this uh, hideous, kitsch, gigantic statue to the Grand Prince Vladimir, who ruled Kiev in the in the uh, 10th century, as you say. But um, the Ukrainians were furious because they had their own um, statue to Grand Prince Vladimir uh, erected in Kiev in 1853, when obviously Ukraine was part of the Russian Empire. But by the 
end of the 19th century, that statue had become a sort of focus for Ukrainian identity as something separate from Russia. And since 1991, the Ukrainians have looked to the Grand Prince Vladimir as the founder of a European-oriented Ukrainian state, which was the reaction of Pyotr Poroshenko, the Ukrainian president, to this unveiling of the Moscow statue, say, well, you know, Grand Prince Vladimir is not the uh, Volodymyr, as he would call him, is not the founder of the Russian state Putin claims. Uh, he is uh, the, the man who, who, took, who founded the, the Ukrainian state and took Ukraine into Europe uh, when it joined Byzantium, as it did by its conversion to Christianity. So here, if you like, are two nationalist mythologies about their own foundation. Here is a conflict over who has the real claim to be descended from Kiev. Um, and it's being used by both sides to, to mobilize national sentiment behind their own position in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine, which after all has been going on uh, for at least 10 years, but um, certainly since the invasion of, of Ukraine began in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea, which is exactly where Grand Prince Vladimir converted to Christianity, at a place called Hersonesis, um, a sort of Greek colony in, uh, near today's Sevastopol. So, you've, uh, so in other words, for, for Russia, as the Patriarch Kirill pointed out in that 2016 unveiling, Kiev is the, is the birthplace of their Christianity, as well as the birthplace of their modern statehood. But that is a statehood to deny Ukraine its own national existence. And it's a book that's right up to date with a, a chapter on the war in Ukraine and uh, looking at uh, uh, possible outcomes and, and results from there. And you have a line about how Putin appeals to traditional values. And I'm just wondering, what are those traditional values and historical values that he is appealing to? Is it the idea of the strong leader? Is it about the, the taking on of the West that you've mentioned? Is it about the idea of the story of the territory of Russia? No, I think it's about um, spiritual values, essentially. And this is where Putin comes from the sort of Slavophile tradition of Tsars and thinkers who are anti-Western, who believe that Russia need not and should not follow the West in terms of its values and where it wants to go. Uh, this is an argument made by Slavophiles in Russia ever since the 18th century when Peter the Great's reforms and then Catherine the Great reforms took Russia on a Western path. And the Slavophiles always felt that Russia was losing its own national character by slavishly following the West, that it would forget its own national identity by trying to be European. And this manifested itself in a whole range of, of, of cultural expressions. But the, um, the, the essential one that Putin's picking up on is, is the idea that even if Russia is technologically, materially backward compared to the West, the Slavophiles argued it is superior spiritually, morally, because it is the true seat of orthodoxy. This is the mythology which remains in, in uh, a potent force in the Russians' understanding of their place in the world today, the mythology of Moscow as the Third Rome, that after the fall of Constantinople in 1453, 
um, Moscow remained the only true seat of orthodoxy. It was uh, it, it, uh, uh, this was given to Ivan the Terrible in the 16th century by the patriarch as an ideology to justify the expansion of the Russian Empire on the grounds that it was the defense of the orthodox. And from this Slavophile idea in the 19th century, uh, you get the, the Putin justification for the war, because in the 19th century, the Slavophiles argued that Russia was really a sort of civilization that stretched further than its territorial boundaries. It was there to defend the orthodox, which it did in the Crimean War, uh, by uh, 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 claiming to protect the Slavs, the Orthodox of the Ottoman Empire. Likewise, Putin argues that uh, Russia has this spiritual duty somehow to protect the to protect the Orthodox and Russian speakers stranded by the collapse of the Soviet Union in Kazakhstan, Ukraine, Belarus, and so on. But that links to these traditional values because part of that sort of armory of Slavophile ideas is, is the, the idea that Russia's traditional principles are about Christianity, they are about um, patriarchy, they are effectively opposed to the individualism, the secularism of the West, which leads in Putin's idea to decadence. So since about 2010, really, he's been presenting himself as the leader of a conservative, traditional reaction against Western liberal values, LGBTQ decadence, as he would put it, which, which he thinks is, um, uh, is, is, is the wrong path for Russia to be taking. And that has found a good deal of traction, I must say, in Russian society, which is socially conservative once you move beyond the big cities and has found a good deal of support from the, from the church for obvious reasons in Russia, but also, I think, has attracted um, support from other states uh, and, and societies in which authoritarianism, nationalism, and an anti-Western stance is combined with um, the importance attached in those societies to religion. So one might, one might argue that that's the case for, for Turkey, for example, or in, in, um, in India with the, 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 the Hindu nationalists now. So um, this is a powerful mix of anti-Western ideologies which Putin is able to mobilise. There have been many different types of regimes over Russia's long history, but how come whenever there is a new direction, it always seems to revert back to the same old kind of authoritarianism? You know, the the, the czars mm. are got rid of, but the USSR is created with with people like Stalin in charge. The the USSR collapses, but then after a, a short time, you see someone like Putin uh, taking over. That the the new direction never seems to last for too long. Yes, and many people would conclude from that that somehow the Russians have authoritarianism or obedience to a Tsar sort of somehow written into their DNA or in their culture. I don't like that idea at all, because in fact there are many times in Russian history when they've had revolutions, after all, when there, and there have been many popular rebellions. And indeed, the basic unit of social organization until 1930 in Russia was the peasants' commune in the village, which was a very democratic, egalitarian, self-governing community. So it's not that it's in the DNA, it's that the institutions have never been able to develop to the point where when authority has collapsed, those institutions are able to sustain a democracy at a, at a national level. 
So if we think about 1917, which is the biggest example of this, the monarchy collapses in February. There's a provisional government, essentially liberal in disposition. But the um, institutions of society were not strong enough to enable a political resolution of all the key questions of 1917, who was to own the land, what sort of constitution was there to be for the former Russian Empire, and so on, before the class conflict took over and the Bolsheviks seized power and through civil war began to build their dictatorship. So, you know, if we look back before 1917, it was only in 1864 that after the emancipation of the serfs three years before that Russia began to develop institutions of local government in the Ziemstvas. You know, where were the sort of trade unions? They were outlawed until 1905. So where were the professional bodies? They had always been too dependent on the state for their existence. Free um, professional unions only began to develop around 1905. So come 1917, none of these are really rooted enough to uh, withstand the class conflicts of that year. And that's the recurring pattern of Russian history, that the state may be weakened, but it will usually find a way to um, recoup the, the loss of powers to, to the periphery. Recently, we had the death of Mikhail Gorbachev, and it was fascinating to see how he was celebrated in the West and mm. uh, and, and and then uh, not honoured by by Putin because I suppose blaming him for the, the the collapse of the Soviet Union. But was there an element of mythologizing or rewriting on both sides there? Uh, possibly on the Western side, I think that. Um the Western evaluation of Gorbachev as a man who gave the Russians freedom and the East Europeans freedom um, is it, true. I think that, that that is a great achievement of, of Gorbachev. But um, from the Russian side, they're certainly mythologizing. I mean, Putin's uh, view of Gorbachev fits into his mythology that Russia is strong when it's united behind a powerful leader. It's weak when it is uh, run by by liberals. So he would put Gorbachev in the camp of the liberals along with Yeltsin, who, in Putin's idea, you know, fall under the influence of the West. And that has um, really resonated with Russians for different reasons, because they um, saw the collapse of the Soviet Union and uh, the huge shake-up of the economy, the loss of their security, the loss of their their, of their pensions, the loss of all sorts of rights and uh, certainties that they'd taken for granted before 1991. They saw all of this as a, as a trauma. Many people uh, suffered terribly in the 1990s and couldn't cope in the new conditions of the market. They, they had no idea about what shares were or um, about, about, um, about how a, a capitalist economy worked. What they saw was uh, the rise of a new get-rich-quick class and then the oligarchs, and power seemed to be corrupt, and they didn't seem to be benefiting from the collapse of the Soviet system at all. So they were only too ready, I think, to um, embrace what Putin was telling them, that this was all the imposition of an alien system on Russia by the West, and that Gorbachev and Yeltsin were no more than, than the puppets of the West. Um, and and so 
his anti-Western message resonated with their own personal experience as the losers of this transition, who, who then obviously become nostalgic about the Soviet system, about the, the certainties of the past, and look to a strong leader like Putin to get them out of what they see as a huge mess. You discussed the war in Ukraine, as you describe it correctly, an unnecessary war. You you explore mm. what might happen next. You also describe uh, Ukraine as having become the site for a clash of civilizations, and it really does seem like the stakes are very high in terms of what uh, what is happening. Absolutely. I mean, Ukraine is the battlefield, but this is a war which is not only Russia's imperial war to try and reconquer Ukraine or bring it back into the Russian sphere, um, it's also a large geopolitical conflict with uh, Russia now quite clearly in the camp of a Eurasia that stretches east to China, fighting against Western values. Um, so uh, the NATO domination of uh, of geopolitics, the American uh, unipolar world, as Putin puts it. It's, it the stakes are extremely high. Um, and um, I'm afraid the outlook is, is not good for anybody because obviously for the Ukrainians, this is an existential war. Putin is out there to wipe it from the geopolitical map. Um, but also for the Putin regime, which has uh, effectively tied its colors to the mast of, of the resurrection of some sort of Russian empire, it's for them equally a um, an existential war. And I think that uh, if they were really under pressure, it would escalate to the point of even the use of tactical nuclear weapons as the Russians have warned. So yes, it's a clash of civilization over values. It's a clash over who controls Ukraine, the crucial buffer state between Russia and Europe. Um, but it's also part of a much, much bigger and really quite terrifying war between Eurasia and the West. OK, well, it's a powerful new book, an important new book based on a lifetime of scholarship. It's called The Story of Russia. It's published in hardback by Bloomsbury Publishing, the author Orlando Fige. And Orlando, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. And that brings us to the end of another edition of Talking History. My thanks to my producer, Marisa Sullivan, and Peter Malloy on sound. Join us next week on News Talk. We've been Talking History. Good night.